When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everyone and welcome to episode number 35 of the fourth wall i'm of course your host griffin schiller and this is the show where we break down the fourth wall of the film industry as we get an inside look through our conversations with industry professionals ranging from writers directors actors you name it this show is of course part of the playlist podcast now where you find the rest of our amazing film and television centric catalog we're talking shows like the playlist podcast be real and so much more whatever your fix is we definitely have you covered over there so be sure to subscribe Subscribe to the podcast feed on your podcatcher of choice, whether that be Spotify, Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, and then you also won't miss out on new episodes of The Fourth Wall. Today is a really fun episode because we are chatting with the co-writer and director behind Netflix's new Fear Street trilogy based off of the novels of the same name by R.L. Stein, Lee Janiak. Fear Street is this epic horror event that Netflix is putting on. Basically, the first film dropped on June 30th, and then then each week following July 7th, July 16th, we're going to be getting a part two and a part three that's going to round out this whole trilogy that is telling uh, one cohesive story, but taking place over the course of three different time periods. So part one takes place in 1994, and it follows a group of teenagers that discover the terrifying events that have haunted their town for generations, and they discover that it all might be connected and that they are all the next targets. Part two, which is hitting Netflix this Friday, July 7th, uh, takes place in the 70s, and then July 16th for the finale, we go all the way back to 1600, 1666 uh, for this weird like Salem witchcraft kind of uh, story that rounds everything all up. It is a lot of fun, and I have seen all three films, and I thoroughly enjoyed each and every one of them, and it's because I'm a big fan of the Lee Janiak brand of horror. For those of you who may be a bit unfamiliar with Lee's previous work, she directed episodes of MTV's Scream series, and then also uh, the hit indie film honeymoon and something that became very apparent to me when watching her work is that she is a hundred percent cut from the same cloth as Wes Craven I mean obviously she got to work with him and collaborate on the Scream series but just seeing what she brought to the table with that and then you know seeing what she was able to do um in a less you know meta sense with something like honeymoon really showcase her versatility and i think fear street is where she brings that whole thing together and we get someone who is able to bring real genre thrills uh to you know a wide audience it's a great gateway horror film series um but then also she's able to write really compelling and fascinating characters that you can get behind see yourself in uh and the best part about it is that it all feels authentic and uh rooted in the people 
people and the demographic that she's trying to represent. She's someone who needs to immediately go on your radar for people whose names you need to look out for and, and their work that they need to follow. I've been a big fan of hers ever since I saw the MTV Scream series, which I still recommend to people as something that I think goes seriously overlooked. People just sort of wrote it off as this, oh, it's this weird like Scream cable TV show. What What's going on here? But the thing that I loved about that show, the thing that she implements so well into Fear Street is her ability to grab hold of your attention at the end of each episode of that series and then at the, at the end of each film in Fear Street and just really keep you wanting to watch it. I mean, I, I told her in the interview, but I watched the Scream series uh, over the course of one night. I binged the entirety of it. I couldn't get enough of it. And I had that same feeling walking away from Fear Street. And so we sort of talk about that, that ability to draw someone in, uh, how you get them immersed in the world, invested in these characters and keep them coming back and back and wanting to, you know, binge this sort of content and keep spending time with the characters. And especially with that first film, 1994, she definitely takes a page out of the Wes Craven brand of horror, sort of fashioning her own scream homage. And we talk about the fun in that, creating this killer 90s soundtrack. I mean, she got me going back and listening to some of my favorite songs of that era. So, I, I mean, it's really effective and it gets in your head. And I think it complements the events that are going on in the film so, so well. We also talk about the challenge in creating these quintessential versions of a 90s horror film, of a 70s horror film, of like a, a Salem witchcraft sort of horror movie, but then also finding room to innovate and subvert expectations. And I think the answer she gave to those questions were so telling of just her approach to the entire mythology, the entire series. And it's why these films, while yes, they do indulge in some of the, the typical slasher um, traits that you would expect to see in there, they take a little bit of a different direction. And I think it's ultimately what helps these films stand apart as much as they do. Naturally, we touch on her history with the books, adapting R.L. Stein, and, and so much more. This was really a blast of a conversation. Um, and Lee is just such a bright spot, so energetic, so present in this conversation and just enjoys talking about her craft. And I, it's something that I really hope happens. I hope they take these three movies and make a theatrical event out of it where we can go marathon all three of these films and just have a great time uh there's nothing like seeing a horror with an audience and i think these films would just do gangbusters there so i'm really pleading and i'm really hoping that that does happen because these films are that good that they're worthy of that theatrical experience but before we go any further i do want to thank my co-host on this episode jenny nolf jenny is probably one of the biggest fear street fans if not the biggest fear street fan uh, i've ever known and so it was a real pleasure to have her uh, help me conduct this interview. I thought she lended a lot to the conversation, as you'll as you'll see. And she also has some history with Lee, which I thought was uh, really nice to see here. And you, you'll get a taste of it here in a few minutes. Again, guys, Fear Street Part 1 is already on Netflix for your viewing pleasure. I can't recommend it enough. Part 2 is hitting Netflix this Friday, July 7th. And then Part 3, the finale, is hitting Netflix July 16th. And you're definitely going to want to make sure you watch all three of them they are the fun slasher horror event of the summer i couldn't get enough of it but enough from me let's get to our conversation with the horror mastermind herself lee janiak hey, it's good to talk to you guys 
Yeah, yeah. Good, to, good to talk to you too. Actually, that was actually oh, that was a big reason why I wanted Jenny to come on this was just because I was like, well, I know that she loves Fear Street, and I and she when we were talking about, it, she's like, oh, I had actually met Lee before at Austin. I was like, oh, well, this is gonna be great. This is gonna yeah, add so perfect. much more to the conversation. <laughs> oh, perfect. Where are you guys right now in the world? I'm still in Austin. You're in Austin. Uh huh. Yeah. Griffin, where are you? Yeah, and I'm 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 in LA. You're in LA too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're- you're in the, yeah, it's. Oh, are are you in LA then? I am. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's weird, sort of how things have just started to like open up recently. I just feel yeah. like there's this this there's this like weird limbo of like, oh, okay, people are not wearing masks outside, but then there's people wearing masks outside, and it's like I don't know what to do, and it's like, ah, uh. <laughs> no, totally. And then fucking pre-pandemic traffic is back, which is always yeah, like, boy, yeah, great. Uh. <laughs> It's a no. It's an absolute disaster. That was that was the one thing that I did like about uh, the the uh, pandemic. Yeah, lack lack of traffic was was great. Well, actually, Jenny, I'll let you start on this because I think it'd be great to sort of pick up with like your love of the the books and everything, and sort of like kind of go from there. Cool. Oh yeah, cool. Um, yeah. So to start, I I'm a longtime Fear Street fan, so much so that I have like I don't know, like seventy books that I refuse to like sell off when I was like in middle school and I still have them. Uh, and I was wondering kind of when you're, when you dove into this trilogy, what was important for you taking from this giant series? That's a little bit messy. I noticed that like you have the cheerleaders references, um, you have camp nightwing, which is I think from the lights out book. And then the fear street sagas are obviously like kind of the pushing current of the entire trilogy. So like, Yeah, when creating this, like what, what, how did you pick what parts of the series you wanted? Yeah, it was obviously very daunting. Um, I, I also was a fan of the books and kind of like, you know, was reading them when I was a teenager and loved them and, and everything. And it was part of the reason I was so excited when my producers were like, we're doing this thing. Do you want to like try to like see what your take would be on it? Um, but I was like, oh shit, like this is hundreds of books and and as you know there's not really connective tissue um mm-hmm. between them they're kind of all living in they all live in this world of shady side and there is like in the sagas you know the hints of like the fear family and the good family but um but there's not like this unifying mythology of why bad stuff happens in shady side so it, it was challenging and i think like what me and then my fellow writers kind of like what we decided um was that we we always wanted to be true to the spirit of the books and what we had felt was the spirit of the books, which was a little bit of an edge of like, like subversive, like, ooh, there's a hint of sex and there's crazy violence. And then, you know, like all of that stuff, but then also fun. And I think that that for me was like the main thing that drew me to the project was like how we could tell R-rated horror movies, but keep them fun, which I think is, is, um, is something that exists in the slasher genre, but in, in recent years in horror has been less kind of um, prevalent in mainstream horror, at least. I actually, I kind of agree with that. And a little bit bouncing off of that, one of the things that I think you mentioned, and I kind of feels a trait of Fear Street is kind of the teen on teen violence. Yeah. And there's no shortage of that in your films. <laughs> um, and I was wondering what you think is so appealing about psychotic teens in your films and what makes these books like so appealing to people 
I don't know. You know, it's funny. Someone else asked me that this morning, a Polish uh, journalist, actually. And I was like, I think this is what he's asking me, but I'm not sure because the connection was bad. And then I was like, maybe I need to talk to a therapist about this. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like <laughs> I feel like there's something amazing about being a teenager where you you kind of know that death exists. Like you're not just like living in kind of that blissful naivete of childhood. So like, you know that that people can die. You understand that. But I think that you're still living in that world of invincibility um, where it seems like um, uh, that's like a distant, a distant future. And, and so for me, it's such like an exciting kind of crazy time to be alive. And I thought a lot about what it was for me to be a teenager and the crazy shit I was doing, like sneaking out at night and like kind of like I worked at a super Kmart in the middle of the night one summer. And it just felt like the world was full of possibility. And I don't know. So for me, putting like horror movies that exist around teenagedom just makes sense because I feel like you're already living on the edge of like, I'm going to drive as fast as I can. And like, I'm going to do all this like crazy stuff. And obviously this is these movies and, and other horror movies that focus around teenagers kind of take it to the next level. But it just it just makes sense to me. I think it's that that worldview that you're kind of living in. And um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, I, I think it's almost sort of like authentic to the teen experience, whereas like most YA sort of, I say YA, like, you know, movies that center around like the high school experience or whatever tend to uh, not want to show that stuff because it's, I guess, taboo or whatever. And that was like one of the things that I really appreciated about this is it's like, it's not only appealing to like fans of these books that are, that are like you know now in their 30s or so on but it's like it it is almost like a great gateway horror sort of entry for for people in high school and it's giving them like legitimate genre thrills uh of that 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 aren't like holding punches or anything like that Oh, I love that you're saying that because that that's definitely like what we were what we were hoping for I I I spent a lot of time thinking about being like 10 11 12 and like sneaking to the video store and trying to yeah. rent that we're not supposed to rent and kind of you know not really like being a huge horror fan yet at that time but but discovering these amazing things that you're kind of split your world wide open um and that's that's kind of what we were hoping for with fear street too yeah well i guess i guess a, a question would just sort of be like what do you think is the struggle with like i i guess the 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 genre in general when when filmmakers try and make these sort of movies because it's very rare that you find films in the horror genre that really hit that sweet spot of being like a great gateway horror movie but also like appealing to older demographics i mean wh what are sort of like the key ingredients that you think should be included uh in something like that i don't know you know for me i think everything kind of trickled back to trying to find a level of authenticity to what kind of the human experience is which is a weird thing to say I think about a horror movie where you have undead killers coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have like this like specter of this witch figure that's been essentially cursing this town for three centuries. But but for me, it was always that. Like, okay, we're, we're talking about insane shit that's happening to these kids. They're discovering crazy things in bloody nonsense is happening to them like a lot. How do we keep it feeling real? And I think that that to me was like important for both like what a teenage audience might feel. And then also as an adult audience too, of like 
I, I can't like even like count the amount of times that I talk to my cast being like, okay, I know this is crazy, but if this was happening to you, like, how do you actually think you would react? And like, how, you know, and that was like a lot of the conversations that we would have. And I think, I don't know, coming back to that question, that central question over and over again, um, was important. And I think that that is, is one of the most important things, like, as far as like, yeah, to answer your question, I guess, like making that clear. Yeah, 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 for sure. And before, before we toss it back to Jenny, I actually wanted to ask like how, how much of the, the cast's own, like, experiences or or like input played into sort of that uh that authenticity you know they were they're all young um and so like weirdly like their kind of experience of of um of movies and horror movies and the slasher movies that we are kind of like hoping to pay homage to they were just like some of them had were familiar with them but other ones were discovering it Mm. and and then obviously none of them had actually experienced anything, anything like this. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But but there was like finding that core thing of like, you know, with um with Dina and Sam, with Kiana and Olivia, it was like trying to remember what it is to be falling in love for the first time. And and then adding like, what is it like when the world is against you? Like beyond that, like what are those conversations? And there's so there would be a lot of that of like what what first love felt like and what it feels like when you don't yet know who you are and you're discovering that through another person and things like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, there it was a very young cast, but they were very mature and very kind of on it. And mm-hmm. and they definitely like their little like kind of world experiences would influence that. But also like they didn't know what AOL chat was and they've never <laughs> They've never lived in a world yeah. where they have like uh. a phone cord, like shit like that, which were like mixtapes were like a novelty. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, this is so <laughs> important to what it means to be a teenager. So like there was crazy things like that too. That's so interesting you say that because I feel like right now with Gen Z, and I think that your cast was mostly like Gen Z age. Yeah. Nineties uh, is really trendy with them. <laughs> so when you were like feeding them all this information, were they like, oh my God, you're like our muse to like our lifestyle right now? Oh, it's funny. I think, so we filmed these in 2019. So mm-hmm. it had just kind of been the beginning of like the Gen Z, like nineties, like sweet spot. Mm. So I think that there was, there was just like this weird kind of, Tourism is a weird, a weird word to like describe it, but I think they were like, yeah, at every turn, it was like, like looking in a museum of like what could happen. They'd get on set and it'd be like, what's this thing? And it's like, oh, that's TV. <laughs> no, I'm just like, like, <laughs> like stuff like that. Um, and it was like very strange to me, like to just, they really only want to text or FaceTime. Like they're <laughs> like, <laughs> Like there's no like talking on the phone like that doesn't it like so like it was very interesting like kinding like finding those things and I don't know it was really fun. Well, kind of like bouncing off of that, all of each of these films kind of plays with some sort of nostalgia, where whether it's like '90s nostalgia or like you know traditional slasher or even like in the third one kind of folk horror, yeah. um, which has its own nostalgia around it as well. Can you talk about kind of? working with nostalgia and not making it too obvious or like it's trying to sell like an older audience, something that they've had before or a younger audience that something that they are not really interested in. Um, I guess kind of like playing with nostalgia without making it seem cheesy. Yeah, that's, that's great. Like I'm, I'm glad that you kind of like 
asked about that and are talking about it because it was one of the things that you know I thought about a lot when we were making was how do we how do we hit the sweet spot of nostalgia which is like there's that fondness there's that familiarity but without it just becoming parody which I think is something that that can easily happen um so I don't know for me we were lucky because like the the 90s the 70s and like you said even like the 1600s and the kind of that period folklore have very clear kind of tropes that can be revisited and kind of you know you know used and blah 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 but the part that made sense for me with Fear Street and what was exciting about Fear Street was telling it now in 2021 I could tell a story about characters that didn't exist in those movies um, and, and not because people didn't exist like that, but because that just wasn't the lens that was like, you know, embraced by film at the time. Um, so, you know, we were able to have across the board characters that would have died very quickly in each of those, in each of those kind of different eras um, and, and kind of give those experiences a, t a chance to be on screen within this familiar place. And I think that helped be able to like, I mean, hopefully, hopefully that helped be able to like find that balance between nostalgia and then something feeling like, oh, there's a reason that we're revisiting this slasher genre, not just like, because it's like a cute thing to do. Um, and, and, it, and that story of those characters made sense, like the whole narrative of Shadyside and the world that we created made sense, like to have characters that were other that did feel like outsiders and so it kind of all felt like organic um yeah yeah jenny jenny and i were talking about this actually before we got on the call i was just something that i think really st stuck out to me is exactly what you said you you almost create these like quintessential versions of like a, a 70s horror film or like a 90s horror film or like a uh, you know, a, a Salem witch trial, like kind of horror film or something like that. But then within those confines, you really find interesting ways to, um, you, you know, subvert expectations and, and like make something that, yeah, like, like over 20 years ago or whatever, wouldn't have been normal, normal now. And and I think that was, act, that I think for both of us, that was one of the biggest, um, I, I guess, things that we enjoyed about that, about the, the, the storytelling. Awesome. That's great. Yay. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I do kind of want to uh, go back into creating those um, the the environments of like the seventies or the nineties because I know um, I, we we saw in the press notes that it was very pre prevalent to me. Like watching the film, music plays such a big part. I think in creating that environment. So I, I'm wondering if you could talk about maybe the process of like selecting the right tracks, and then also um, why you think like the soundtrack was probably like the best entry point into um you know the world there yeah i mean i think that music for me is such a, a huge part of my job as a filmmaker um and i i know that like not every director agrees with that but for me it's kind of always my jumping off point even before there's a script i'm always kind of crafting playlists um and so with fear street it was no different i i made a playlist that um, I put on a USB flash drive and then I put that in like an old cassette container for part of my pitch when I was getting hired on the, oh. on the movie. And then after I got hired as we were writing and then ultimately when we were prep and then like through shooting, the playlist just would grow and grow and grow. And I'd share those with crew and cast because I think there's, especially when you're making a, a period movie, that thing brings you back, like short of like smell, I think that music is the thing for me that I immediately understand a level of like feeling that would take, 
you know, pages and pages of dialogue and like mm. crazy, th- like you immediately just know you're there. Um, yeah. So that was really, really exciting to me. And a lot of the music was written into the script. Um, the Man Who Sold the World, I think, was the first one that got kind of like like put there and immortalized in like on the page. Um, and I remember writing it and being like, OK, I'm putting in the Nirvana cover in the 90s and then I'm putting in the Bowie one at the end and I'm thinking I don't know I feel that this is going to be very expensive (laughs) (laughs) and I and I was like very kind of nerve-wracking so that that was there and then um there was obviously the Pixies were in there um and then like a few other ones were actually in the script itself and as we got into to post um I just like my my playlist had already been existing for so long. So it was like, yes, yeah, Sophie B. Hawkins or, mm. you know, Bush or Nine Inch Nails or whatever we're going to do. And it just kind of like went from there. And luckily, Netflix was amazing and really, really supported the movies and understood that music was so important. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think I you really hit a sweet spot there with the music that it was like effective and every track. I, I mean, obviously, because you wrote it into the script, every track really served a purpose. I think oftentimes you can get films where they're they're just doing needle drops for the sake of doing needle drops. And this yeah. did not feel like that at all. And I mean, the second I heard garbage playing at the beginning where, where she's on the bed and writing, yeah, yeah. The, the, I was like, oh, yes, I'm back. Yeah. I'm there. I yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, totally. it was it was great. But on that on that same point, I did want to ask how you know, obviously the music was the entry point into the 70s and the 90s, but when you go back to the 1600s, how did you sort of want to shape that uh, landscape and bring that environment to life? Um, Obviously, since there were no, you know, radio (laughs) tunes at the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's funny when going into it. um, So I knew that I wanted my my dream composer for the movies was was always Marco Beltrami, who did mm. the original screams, um, and obviously has done a million other amazing things since then. But for me, his score for Scream kind of completely reinvented what horror could sound like because it's bright, it's bombastic. There's horns, there's all of these things. So he was perfect, and I knew that. Um, I didn't yet know what we would do to translate the sound into the 1600s. And so one of the things that was important to me in doing the 1666 movie was being able to find some kind of like um, some kind of like modernity, like some kind of like immediacy with the experience of the characters and kind of not making it feel set apart, Um, like keeping it close to the audience and making us feel like we understood the point of view. and so a lot of that happened with the camera work and keeping it handheld and, and all of those kinds of things. But music wise, I my playlist for 1666 had a lot of Cliff Martinez on it mm. um, and specifically his his work on the Nick, um, which I think is like so amazing. And just like it, it's electronic, which ultimately we didn't really live. We, we have a lot of synth in the 1666 score, but it's not full like, you know, it's not Martinez electronic, but right. there was something about that, that kind of like the Nick score is so brilliant and it's very unnerving and uncomfortable, but yet like keeps you, it like puts you in a place, but it, it also feels like vibrant and alive. And um, so, yeah, so that was kind of the, the touchstone. And I remember like sharing that and I don't think any of the cast had watched the Nick or knew the Nick and, mm. and they were like, what is this crazy music? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, but before I send it back to Jetty, I, I do want to also ask, cause I, I read that uh, Terrence Malick's The New World was an inspiration for the, 
I guess the visual palette for that film. And I mean, that's really interesting to me for two reasons. Cause one, it's, it's great to hear someone actually talk about that movie. Cause it's, it's people don't ever talk about that when they talk about Malik or, or whatever. Um, and then I also, I, I think it was interesting cause Jenny and I were talking, we're like, you know, I, I feel like I'm getting vibes from the village and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, what was it about the new world that made you want to sort of like channel that, specific energy into your your film yeah so you're not wrong in that like obviously the village was also an influence um the crucible kind of like the witch obviously i looked at like all of those but but the new world for me i i'm a huge malik fan but i love the new world probably more than anyone else (laughs) and and i watch it like at least once a year and i think the thing that made sense to me for this movie was this I just feel like it does this amazing thing where you you see kind of pre-colonial America and you see this beautiful space and this like very organic alive world with like characters that are really kind of like I don't know just like living and connecting and everything mm-hmm. and then you see these settlers come and they just destroy it and it's so gross when you get into this like amazing settlement and it's just dirty and muddy and everyone's like disgusting and i just thought it was this kind of beautiful kind of depiction of how something pure can become rotten and mm-hmm. um and that along with just like i mean he's the steady cam obviously in that movie is incredible as it yeah. is in yeah. all of his movies um but that kind of like very flowing attached to character point of view was really important. And then also the palette of like just living in very kind of organic and neutral browns and, um, and yellows, and then having like the vibrant blue and orange of flame and things like that. Like the whole kind of color palette was really inspiring to me too. Well, to totally like steer the conversation in another direction. I'm so sorry. Uh, (laughs) No, it's good. (laughs) There is something I really liked throughout all three of your films is that a lot of the films that you mentioned that are like your inspirations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The touchstones. Yeah. The touchstones. Yeah. Um, They're all directed by men. And obviously you're not a man. And I thought what I found really, really refreshing about these films is that a lot of the it felt like it was shot through a female gaze. Where, like, I think a very good specific example is the second one, where you have kind of this Friday the 13th, like, energy, but, like, some of the key components of those movies, like, even The Burning, is, like, lots of boobs, lots of, like, female body, like, being shown off while they're getting, like, hacked, but you don't do that, and I really appreciated that, and I wanted to kind of ask you like what when you're going into like these kinds of uh, nods what is it about like the female gaze that you like specifically like did you consider that when you were like recreating these like kinds of iconic moments yeah I mean I think it's funny I don't you know I don't spend a lot of time thinking like oh I'm a woman or anything like that but I think that like but 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 looking back like it's it's good that you're talking about the 70s because I think okay so I'm going to talk around a few things, but with the nineties movie, um, there's obviously sex, there's hints of sex in that movie. And, and one of the biggest nods to scream is when the girls are hooking up in the chemistry classroom and she starts to take off her bra and then we don't see anything. Cause we like cut away, um, which is like, you know, this, I just remember that moment with skeet and, um, and, uh, what's her name in, in the nineties and being like, no boobs, like that's not happening here. <laughs> but then when you go back to seventies movies, like, you need some nudity like you i think that that's important to kind of what the slasher movies were so thinking about that 
I was like, okay, we, we need to do that here. There needs to be some nods of this. And like you said, it's usually all women. And, and I think that is because largely those movies were directed by men and, and it's weird. And it's like, because horror films are also like, as you both know, like audiences are very diverse for horror films and often more female than they are male. And so whatever, like it just felt antiquated to be living in this like binary world anyways, where especially when our our overarching story here is a queer story. So it's kind of like, what are we doing here? Like, like, let's just like, let's be open and like kind of real with what nudity we're showing and how we're, how we're looking at these different characters and how we're portraying them and kind of let's like um, equal opportunity objectify. I'd say. Mm. <laughs> I feel like you definitely do that in 1666, <laughs> which I appreciated. <laughs> um, but you kind of mentioned this, like, you mentioned it a few times where it was really, really important to you to diversify your films and make them a little, like, feel more modern than they are. Because, like, yeah, in the 90s and the 70s, you didn't have queer characters leading the pack or even, like, someone who is mixed race. Or yeah. so was that like very important to you when creating this series that I mean if you reread the books everyone's kind of white in the series everyone's white yeah yeah <laughs> was that like a really important thing for you when recreating this I mean obviously it was but why specifically yeah I think that that to me like I, I think I said a little bit was the key of kind of making these movies feel um like they deserve to exist um and that that we could just kind of shine a light on the reality of what the world is and not just like keep it to this very kind of white heteronormative like cisgender kind of world um and luckily the the mythology and the narrative that we were creating around shady side and what that core kind of like curse was and everything made sense and that we could find characters that have been told that they're outsiders for whatever reason um so race and sexuality and kind of gender roles and all of that really and socioeconomic stuff too really played into each of these characters were outside for some reason um and and we tried to kind of like both subvert the expectations of what these characters would normally be when they were in movies so you know josh's character um but also being true to the experience so josh is josh is is all, a mixed race he's he's black and he's also latino and um and he's also a nerd because that also exists like <laughs> you know he didn't have to just be like whatever stereotype of what a black a young black boy would be in the 90s um and then the same thing with kate like there we had a lot of discussion about kate because i think that when you see kind of asian americans in um just any popular culture, they tend to fall into that. Like they're the nerdy smart one. And like, that's like the default. And, and Kate is super smart, but she's not like the nerd. She's super alpha. She's the one driving it because it's like, this is the reality of what people are. Everyone is like, there's just like a swath of personality um, that can exist. So that, that was important to me to be able to like kind of show different windows into these characters and, and just say like, oh, you could be this or you could be this or you could be this. Um, and I thought it was very exciting. Well, I, I also kind of wanted to talk about, uh, I mean, and, and you're sort of touching on it right now, I guess, adapting within the, you know, the confines of like previously existing material. And you did a little bit of that or you didn't. I mean, you, you did that with the, the Scream series for MTV. And then you've also done that uh, with this, with it, with it, uh, you know, adapting R.L. Stein's uh, 
novels. So it's like when you have properties like that who are created by people who have such a distinct creative voice, how do you figure out how to like infuse your own in there while still making it feel like, okay, so yeah, this, this feels like an R.L. Stein kind of thing, or this feels like a Wes Craven thing, but it's also like a Lee thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that it starts from like just which projects I choose to kind of get involved in. So it's like being able to find something that I love um, like as a, as a source material, I think is important. And then once that like kind of, that like kind of fandom is there for me then yeah. i feel like i can connect on this like level where i'm i'm wanting to i want to do it justice i want to be true to what it is and then and then also like find that space where like oh but also like this is how i would tell this story but it's still the same story you know what i mean it's still mm-hmm, like the mm-hmm. same thing and and i think but so that's a long way of basically saying that it's like i think if i didn't love the source material it would be a different whole different ball game and i don't know but so that had to exist for me with fear street same thing with scream even with outcast which was like another show that i did that robert kirkman um Mm. uh, created as a graphic novel and it's like those were you know i have to find a little bit of love for that first material so then i can be true to it as i'm changing it (laughs) yeah well, I, I mean, I think like definitely in in the first one, especially your your love of like '90s horror and like the Craven brand of horror, I think really, I, I really comes through, and and I feel like it's all, it's almost like you're going for full circle with your experience on that series, and now you get to sort of make your own version of that with there. I mean, even getting like, uh, you know, someone like Maya Hawk for the beginning. I mean, that was such like a stroke of genius. I love it. Yeah, great, awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did that sort of come about with, with like like getting Maya to do, do something like that? Well, I, um, my, my husband actually is one of the co-creators of Stranger Things. And oh, yeah, so yeah. he, um, I knew at the time, like, believe it or not, we were, uh, the season where Maya kind of debuted as Robin hadn't come out yet. Like, I think that it was still script stages when I was like starting to, to cast. And I knew, I felt like I had this like secret privileged information. Cause I was like, Robin's <laughs> character is so good. And Maya's incredible. And like, she's going to pop. And hopefully, like, be that Drew Barrymore type, like, feeling of, like, ooh, I recognize her. And so I kind of, I remember, like, talking to my um, my producers about it and being, like, just so you know, like, Maya is, like, going to break out. Like, she, obviously, she's, like, you know, the daughter of very famous, amazing actors, but, like, she's amazing. And so that's kind of how Maya came about. I was, like, I, I knew that this was going to happen. And um and so I was lucky enough to to convince her. And um yeah, her her part is amazing, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was like I I loved the second that started and I I, I when I saw her there, I was like, Oh, is she she's not in the full thing? I was like, Oh no, they're they're going for that 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 homage there. That's yeah, uh, I yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love that. Um, but I guess the the other interesting thing sort of about this is because I, I sort of uh, was introduced to your work with uh, with that Scream series. And I, I cannot tell you how much I loved that series. I mean, I, I vividly cool. remember binge, binging it throughout the entirety of a, yeah. a night. And um, I, I kind of 
what, what I really liked about these films is that it felt like you were sort of employing those same techniques of that, like, I have to keep watching, I have to keep, you know, sticking around for the for the next film um, th- that you would do in, like, a TV series like that. You you, you employed that with, uh, with a film, which is very rare to see. Um, and so, like, what I mean, what do you think is the secret to sort of like capturing an audience's attention like that and their and their investment? Like, like, how do you keep them coming back like that? I mean, it was honestly you're you're kind of hitting the nail on the head of the central kind of question that we had when we started making the movies, which is, you know, Peter Turner, and my producer, had this idea he wanted to release a trilogy in the same year, and it was like that's awesome, but usually a trilogy has a year or two in between. And then audiences are like, great, I'd love to revisit this world and these characters again. And you've had that time. So the central kind of question that me and the other writers we had was like, how do we do this? And and why do we do it? And how do we make it more than just a gimmick? And, um, and I think that ultimately what we came to was finding this hybrid of like movie and traditional television content where each movie hopefully feels like a satisfying kind of experience unto itself where you've you kind of get to have resolution with the central kind of like you know conflicts that you've introduced and then also keep us going keep us invested in the characters almost more like we we thought of the end of each movie as like the end of a season of television Mm. um so that you like you were resolved but you're still driving forward you still want more and so that was kind of the that was the main thing that we we kind of were trying to achieve and we came to and um and i think it's really exciting and i think that um I hope other people do. For me, it's very freeing as a filmmaker to kind of start thinking beyond the traditional, oh, a movie must fall between an hour and a half and two and a half hours, or Mm -hmm. an episode of television must be 45 minutes to an hour, whatever, and just kind of let the stories expand and be what what they will be, and then kind of shape everything else around that. And Netflix has been an amazing partner as far as figuring out like, how do we do this? And what is the best way of doing it that makes it still feel like an exciting movie experience, but also this other new thing. So, yeah. Well, that's in in a way Netflix is like the perfect platform for this because, yeah. like you're saying, you're you're blending like the the TV mantra with like the film ideology or whatever, and then you're coming together on a on a streaming platform. So yeah, that totally. that definitely that definitely makes sense. When you were first like sort of like thinking about like like in the early stages of the creation process, were you ever like, did you ever consider a mini series as like a format for it, or did you always want to do these as films? No, I mean, I definitely, I think that Peter was the one that was like, no, these are movies. Because at, at a few points, it was like, this should be, this should be just like, yeah, like you said, like a mini series. And, and what does that word even mean? And I don't know. Yeah. And it was very much like, no, 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 we want to, we want to preserve this idea of a movie, which I think is right insofar as that, like, we have these different worlds, like these different, like each era is kind of its own specific thing, which is not exactly something that would ever exist in a miniseries. And it, I don't know, it's kind of like these words that we're using to describe it. I don't even, I don't even fucking know, but like, but it was definitely, <laughs> it was definitely like a conversation. And when we started making the movies, we were at Fox and they were still theatrical. And so that was like another thing. Like Netflix was very kind of into the idea from the very beginning and being like, are you sure you're making them at Fox? And it was like, oh, interesting. Like Fox um, controls this. (laughs) But they had been sniffing around for a long time. And and I was obviously, I love going to the movie theater. uh, Like I think any movie lover does and was excited about like pushing that boundary too. Um, but, 
it, it was this question of the same thing that we have ultimately of how do we make it not just a gimmick? How do we make audiences not feel like we're tricking them into needing to buy a ticket a couple of weeks later or whatever it would be? So I don't know. It was a very interesting kind of uh, development process that got us to where we are. Going off of that point, uh, do you do you have like uh, any any plans or a desire to like do something theatrical with this and sort of do like a maybe like a three film marathon uh, at, at a theater or something like that? Totally. I think that those are like, we're, we're doing some amazing screenings kind of in LA okay. um, for the month of July, which is cool. And then I think that we've all been kind of talking and discussing of how can we do some, some kind of, um, I, for lack of a better word, like stunt theatrical release. Cause it is to me, at least it's exactly the kind of thing that I would love to like go and yeah. sit in the theater and just be like, all right, I'm in it. I'm like, three movies in, I'm going to watch like all night long and I'm going to eat my milk duds and my popcorn and it's going to be amazing. <laughs> so, so yeah, we're, we're kind of figuring all of that out now because I think it is really a fun experience also to be with other people watching too. So good, good. Yeah. I, I, that I couldn't agree more. This is definitely like the thing that deserves that, that sort of, uh, treatment i have like a few more questions uh one i remember talking when we first interviewed when i first interviewed you about honeymoon yeah uh how you told me that that was originally a romance and i kind of think that's really interesting to go in as a horror movie is to like think of it as a different genre before it molds into the actual genre it is and I know that there's a lot of like adventure elements in Fear Street that kind of like reminded me of like, you know, like you return to Oz's, you're like the Goonies, like obviously the little like bucket scene was extremely Goonies. Um, did you have that same process going into this film, at these films as you did with Honeymoon? I mean, obviously you did with the new world a little bit, but. Yeah, no, totally. And I think also like weirdly, it seems that what I really like to do is tell love stories and then destroy them. Um, which is like, yeah, so it was the same thing. Like, I, I don't know, I'm always looking for like kind of the character way in and the, like, the, the human way in. And then what does it become? Like, what are the, how do the genre elements kind of like influence that core story? So it was definitely, you're very right. Like the, the love story thing, first of all, exists in this movie too. And then yes, the adventure element was, was there because I think that that was the thing that I didn't want I wanted the movies to be bloody. I wanted them to be scary, I, but above all, I wanted them to be fun. And I think that looking at movies like Goonies and like things like that were, that was the key to me of like, how do you keep this like adventure mystery element going? And it's funny that you mentioned Goonies cause that I remember when I was first like kind of cracking what the second movie would be, it was like, it's like horror Goonies. <laughs> like that's, the, that's the thing. And so everything kind of trickled down from that. I think that's really interesting for me personally, especially since Fear Street is so like strictly horror. Um, but going back to the books, my final question would be, what's your favorite one of all of them as a fan? <laughs> um, of all of the books? I don't know. I mean, it's been years since I've really, really delved in, but I started rereading the wrong number, like a few, like, like maybe like a month or so ago, which is like the one that we actually use the cover of when, when we're in the bookstore at the beginning of that. And I just like, <laughs> it's so funny, like just like going back and reading it, I'm immediately transported to being a teenager. And like, you know, it's Dina and Jade, I think are the names of the characters in that book. I think it's Jade. I think that's the other one. And it's like, they're doing this like um, prank calling, which is so incredible. And that 
honestly, I think is the thing that I miss about like real phones more than anything else. Cause I just have these like great memories of like going back through the phone book and like prank calling people in the middle of the night during slumber parties. And so I love the wrong number. Like I love it. And I love like the, the crush that they, that Jade has on like Dina's like older, like stepbrother and like, I don't know. But you know which one I haven't read, which I'm like, I kind of want to. It's called Cat. It just says cat. Oh, yeah, I have it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what is this one? I have not read that one. And I'm like, really interested. About (laughs) an evil cat. (laughs) Can you believe it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's funny, though, because I actually recently reread The Wrong Number in October because I was like, I want to reread one of these before the movies come out. And then I, I chose that one. And I loved like the little nods in the first one to it, like actually visually seeing it. And then the final scene also has yeah. a note in it. And I was like, ah, oh, yes. Totally. <laughs> totally. Yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I guess I'll, I'll just sort of end like this. If, if you were, if, if you get the opportunity to do, uh, you know, a, a follow-up to this, which I, I really hope you do, what where would you sort of want to take the, the Fear Street uh, series? Um, I mean, there's two places. So one, I think we're obviously setting up the ability for kind of a reset of like someone else kind of like, re-engaging with the evil that lives in shady side so i'm i'm interested in what that means and where that could live and when that could live um and that kind of would be like the next trilogy so to speak and then Mm -hmm. the other thing just like selfishly for me is i'm interested in kind of um a 50s um like kind of slasher that lives in like this weird kind of night of the hunter type world um that i think also would fit really cool into the fear street universe so that's the beginning kernel of an idea but um those are the two places that i'm really interested in and then i think that there's a million opportunities for like lots of of neat cool bloody crazy things to happen so yeah for sure i am a hundred percent sold on that 50s night of the hunter idea that i i really hope that happens but yeah yeah me too (laughs) awesome (laughs) well listen lee thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure uh chatting with you uh i loved all three of these movies i i think people are gonna really uh dig them and and i i hope you get to do that like uh that theatrical sort of event thing that would be so fun totally totally and yeah. we are i hope you come <laughs> i absolutely will be there absolutely wonderful <laughs> and jenny it was good to see you again yeah so great seeing you again never in austin i'll, I'll hit you up <laughs> you. we love it down there it's so good <laughs> really hot right now though so don't come right now <laughs> not a summer not a summer visit um all right thank you guys so much yeah for sure take care talk to you soon bye